Health and Fitness with David Hollywood in association with The Hearing Consultancy. TheHearingConsultancy.ie Hello and welcome to this week's Health and Fitness with me, David Hollywood. Coming up on the show, you'll hear about the alarming new research that says one in four of us in Ireland have grown up with the problem drinker at home. What are the far-reaching consequences and where are we with alcohol in this country? You'll find out shortly. We're talking to a couple of role models in sport as well this week. Paula Rafferty is a coach at Mullingar Rugby Club. We've got her on the show to talk about breaking stereotypes, getting young women into rugby and the broader community around the sport. Athlone Boat Club's new captain is Deirdre Feary. She's just the second woman to take on the role in the boat club's history. Deirdre is in love with the sport. She's in love with the people and she's on health and fitness this evening to talk about leading the club forward over the next couple of years. It's a busy programme this week. Our final segment will celebrate the carers in this country who have gone above and beyond. Nursing Home Ireland joins us on health and fitness to talk about the National Care Awards. But first, let's look at our culture here for a minute. Part of the social fabric of this country is the consumption of alcohol for better and very much for worse. There's been some remarkable statistics to come out of a Maynooth University study on alcohol. Much of it we're probably aware of individually, but what do we do about it collectively? A quarter of all adults in Ireland, almost a million people, have experienced living with a problem drinker as a child. I spoke to CEO of Alcohol Action Ireland, Sheila Gilhini, about this earlier. I started by suggesting, while we're developing, we ourselves are learning habits, we're malleable and ultimately we're vulnerable. I think you really put your finger on it, you know, you were saying that it affects development. So, you know, you just think back to a child and you think of, you know, the, the, the normal loving home and all that love is there, you know, in a home where there's a problem drinker. But what there also can be is instability, not being sure of the ground you're on, not being sure what sort of mood um, the parent will be in. Will they turn? Will they turn up? Will they be there? Will they be able to get you out in the morning to get to school? You know, breakfast. Will they get you to sports practice? So sometimes just practical stuff like that is is an element, but hugely it's the uh, the emotional side of things of just not being sure of the ground that you're on. And we also know <clears throat> that unfortunately, this particular adverse childhood experience. It can also be a gateway to other problems like domestic violence, like emotional, um, often sometimes sexual abuse as well too. So there's a, there's a whole range of different things that can you know, arise from this. And we know from the same study that, you know, going into adulthood, that there's a, a, a real connection between having had this experience and experiencing other problems later in life. And, and they were summarized under a, a heading of a PTSD, post-traumatic stress the disorder. And, and again, that links in with other research we've seen um, with, you know, people experiencing problems, say, for example, with um, anxiety, with depression, maybe addiction problems themselves, eating disorders, a whole range of different things, unfortunately, can't can arise. I referred to as well in our introduction there that the social tapestry of this country is very much intertwined with consuming alcohol so that while I think a lot of us fundamentally understand that our children's development one of the most important aspects of it is that they don't experience a sense of insecurity. But for a lot of people in this country, uh, having a drink isn't perceived as anywhere near as big an issue as the consumption of other drugs, for instance. Um, That kind of um, blind spot, as it were, uh, that must lead to a lot of the issues that we're talking about. Socially drinking 
maybe less so these days, but for a long time has always been accepted as an acceptable uh, part of the furniture at home. Absolutely, you know, and it's no surprise that we we do, you know, live in that particular way. We're absolutely saturated with alcohol marketing that tells us that it's um, completely normal, totally normal that every occasion is a drinking occasion, whether that's, you know, births, marriages, deaths, first communions, whatever, um, or whether it's the more normal, just, you know, Friday evening, um, you know, with the pizza or whatever, things like that, that that alcohol is uh, an inherent component of the ordinary, of the everyday. What then would Alcohol Action Ireland like to see being done to, first and foremost, to bring down the number of children in this country who will be exposed to problem drinkers at home? I think there's actually two sides to this. Um, we have to recognise right now there's about 200,000 children living in this particular situation. So you think in a typical classroom, that's probably maybe about four or five children that a teacher every day will be having in their classroom who's experiencing this. So we think that actually um, schools really need to be aware of this, need to be, you know, I, I, we would call it trauma-informed, you know, that they have some training. We're not saying that they have to intervene in a kind of mental health capacity, but actually we do know that um, being able to provide um, a listening ear, a bit of support, a kind word, kind voice, actually can go an awful long way to ameliorate some of those uh, difficulties that people would experience as, a, as an adult. You know, the, the feeling of being seen, of being recognised, that, that their experience is very head and harm because it's really not talked about an awful lot. So that, that's one side of things. Mm. We would say there's a real need, though, to reduce the overall level of alcohol use in the country. Um, this is one aspect of um, alcohol harm. There are many others. Um, you know, we see the pressure on our health system, for for example, uh, 1,500 beds in use literally every single day uh, in relation to alcohol problems. So those are just some examples. And some of the ways that we know that you can reduce uh, alcohol use is um, we could be implementing the legislation that we actually have, the Public Health Alcohol Act, which actually would put some curbs on the amount of alcohol advertising that we're exposed to, uh, which should be a broadcast watershed, which you see alcohol ads, and there should be controls on the content of alcohol advertising. Mm. And that's allowed for in that legislation, but it hasn't been implemented even those five years since it's actually passed. But there are other things as well that we can do, you know, things like, um, you know, controls on availability. We're very aware that we have coming up um, a sale of alcohol bill which uh, seeks to increase the licensing hours Yes, and we have so much evidence from all around the world that when you increase licensing hours you increase the level of alcohol use and you actually increase all those harms like domestic abuse, like assaults, like you know, just more more pressure on our health system. So we're really calling on the government, you know, and, and to the minister, uh, uh, Minister McEntee, uh, to, to look again at this and to take a public health approach to the licensing and to the sale of alcohol. You mentioned marketing and advertising there, and I wanted to ask you your, for your perspective on what we're seeing in relation to, we know that, like, say, watersheds exist in terms of um access to uh, advertisers uh, to get onto platforms to advertise alcohol. But we're also seeing now, and I notice it from watching sporting events uh, that no longer can sell alcohol uh, or advertise it, I should say. We're seeing 0.0% uh, alcohol brands and 
it's it reminds me of the cigarette companies owning vaping companies and advertising those in, in a way. Um, is what we're seeing there, presumably, uh, I w- I'm guessing this is a subjective interpretation, but those alcohol companies are seeing benefits to their alcohol products as well as their zero products in their advertising. We would see that um, the, the advertising of these products in those very specific areas where it has been outlawed under the Public Health Alcohol Act, we would see that as a very cynical move to try and get around uh, the restrictions there. The restrictions are actually very modest. They, oh, they say that you shouldn't advertise close to a school in, in the outdoor space within 200 metres. You can't advertise on public transport, like on, on buses, and you can't advertise on the field of play and, and that's literally just the actual grass, the field of play uh, of of this the sport. But in all of those areas, there's now been a proliferation of uh, advertising for zero products using identical branding to the master brand uh, there. And uh, we have been calling on uh, the minister for Stephen Donnelly actually to to really address this. Uh, and he has noted that he, and he would describe it himself as a as a very cynical move on on the on the, on the part of the alcohol producers. And, but we're saying we need to we need to move up and we need, we need to really address this because um, it's making a mockery of those quite modest uh, proposals that are that, that, that modest legislation within the Public Health Alcohol Act, and it really does need to be addressed. Yeah, it certainly feels like two steps back after taking a step yeah. forward in relation to the whole point of that. And then you spoke about Stephen Donnelly and, and, and maybe he would be an ally to your cause within Cabinet uh, as being Minister for Health. But presumably, and this is a semi-permanent state uh, of a situation, there's always conflict between um, tourism, the nighttime economy, um, the the tax revenue. Uh, these are priorities typically for an Irish government. Um, but then there's the question of health. Have you? Um, where do you think Ireland stands in terms of uh, your um, uh, the people in government who who can legislate uh, for the issues that you're lobbying for? Well, you know. We are very aware that actually people around the world have been looking at Ireland's legislation and have been congratulating Ireland, you know, on making making moves, say, for example, around minimum unit pricing and on the labour of alcohol products. But there's a definite policy mismatch across the government. So on the one hand, you have the Department of Health, who have the very laudable aim of trying to reduce our alcohol use. And they have they've set targets for that, which haven't actually been reached. But, you know, the target at least is is there. And then you have other branches of the government, like the Department of Justice, who are actually looking to do the opposite. They're looking to increase sales. And one of the things that we say is that there's a need for coherent government strategy around alcohol. And we've actually been calling for the establishment of an alcohol office that would take the lead in developing these policy matters and coordinating across government. It, it, we actually find it very puzzling because when we look at, say, for example, um, the cost of alcohol to Ireland, it costs Ireland at least 3.7 billion annually, and it's probably an awful lot more than that because those figures are, are now uh, some years out, um, out, out of date. But it, let's say it is at least 3.7 billion. When we look at what comes in from excise duties, that's only about a third, 1.2 billion. So there's a when I look at this just simply from a, you know, just adding up, the sums don't add up. Mm. Um, we would be looking at why does the Department of Finance allow this to happen? 
um, when they know that they could actually raise more money to try and pay for the damage, which and would also actually have the knock-on effect of reducing the level of harm in, in the country. So again, it just points to that you know government mismatch across different departments and the need for coordination uh, across all departments on this, this uh, matter. It's a big enough issue to get over if we're all singing off the same hymn sheet, let alone um, the challenging circumstances that the landscape provides at the moment. Uh, but um, Sheila, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us on health and fitness this evening. Just a final point then. If anybody wants to learn more about what uh, Alcohol um, uh, Action Ireland do and the kind of information that um, you might be able to provide, uh, how might they get hold of that? So our website is alcoholireland.ie. And there's a lot of information on that on our contact details as, as well, but, but the work that we would do. CEO of Alcohol Action Ireland, uh, Sheila Gilhini, I really appreciate you talking to us on health and fitness. Thank you. When we return, you're going to meet a role model, a teacher and a bit of a standard setter. Health and Fitness with David Hollywood with the Hearing Consultancy. Book a free hearing test at our clinics in Clara, Edenderry, Kinnegad, Mullingar, Tillamore and get impartial advice on hearing aids, ear protection, tinnitus health and more. Thehearingconsultancy.ie Rugby's too tough for girls. It's a boys game in sporting and social terms. It's a private school game. These are just some of the preconceived notions that Mullingar Rugby Club are setting out to dispel with their Girls in the Game initiative. Paula Lafferty is a coach at the club and a staunch advocate for women's participation in sport. She tells us why she cares. The club itself has some really, really great supporters of young girls getting involved and of course the senior team as well. And it's really about ensuring that girls get the same opportunities and that they get they can show you know what, what they have to offer on the pitch, but also as a rugby community and the broader sense of developing players, not just skill based, but also their character, their integrity. And, and one of the most important things of, of the of rugby is, of course, the respect and the club respects all members, tall or small. <laughs> they're all welcome and all very much appreciated. You touched on something there, I think, that really speaks to the value of rugby, which is the community, the respect and the supportiveness. And if that can actually take in, because uh, no, obviously I think historically rugby has had a disproportionate male membership. If that can be rebalanced, then it has a far reaching effect on not just people's attitudes during games or at training, but that kind of stuff really does rub off in the real world as well. Oh, absolutely. We have a great collection of coaches and mentors who themselves have, have played the sport and of course their children are coming through boys and girls and it's great to see them really kind of push forward all all agendas and ensure that they all get to pre, get to play and enjoy the, the rugby because it does offer a huge uh, range of experiences for young players especially in young children and it's really nice to see that, you know, dads get involved and now moms are getting involved. And of course, now we're seeing, of course, we see uh, players, including myself, who come back and then start to give back to the, the club as well and to the kids because it's just, it's a really positive experience. And as a coach, you just, you can't, you can't top it coming out and you see all the kids, big smiles on their faces and you see parents just so happy that their children are making friends and developing not only, as we said already, not only their, their, the skills on the pitch, but also that sense of team, the community. And often some will refer to it as a family. And, you know, it's, it's a home away from home. The club itself is all about ensuring that everyone feels validated and everyone feels part of the process. 
that it's not a them or us, whether it's gender or club or team, that we're all in it together and that we all contribute and we all gain uh, the positives from that. You alluded to one of the things that you enjoy about coaching there, which is seeing the smiling faces and um, the development of young people. What was it that brought you towards coaching? Uh, why do you do what you do there? I suppose initially, um, I'm coming from a teaching background myself. I'm a teacher. so ah, okay. Uh, but also, <laughs> like, my, my dad was uh, big into sport. Uh, John Lafferty, he played, he played soccer now. He wasn't he wasn't a rugby man. I've, I think I've made him a rugby man since. But um, I've learned from him, like, the importance of giving back. You know, like, when you enjoy something, uh, the biggest reward you can get is giving back to younger children and seeing them also experience the positives you've had and ensuring that, you know, you pass on those positives and, you know, help them grow, help them grow their character and also help them, you know, learn skills like problem solving, uh, developing skills to work with conflict. They're all skills that we, you know, in life need to be able to do. And and rugby is a sport that you will be able to develop those with people who are going to nurture and support and also, you know, challenge. And it's a really, it's a really good uh, environment for that. Speaking of challenges, you said recently somewhere that every challenge is an opportunity in disguise. How does that manifest through the sport? Oh, well, <laughs> it manifests in many, in many formats, uh, mentally and physically. It is a very physically demanding sport. And um, those of us who enjoy the, the, the physical nature of it get huge positives, out of, especially regards mental health. And many a player will have said to me, and I even myself, I would say that after a game or after a good training session, you just feel renewed. You just feel the stresses of that week have been put on that pitch and you go home, your body's sore, but your mind is rested. And it's a real good way for especially young players and young people to learn how to manage. You know, life is stressful and it's kind of like it seems a bit of a contradiction that you go into a sport that's physically and intellectually challenging, but that you come out just relaxed, which in theory, it doesn't make sense, but it really is uh, a sport that um, challenges you to, you know, when you're problem problem solving on the pitch, but also, you know, pushing your body, but being, you know, being smart about it. We I always say to players is, you know, you play, play smart, not always just hard. And I think that's probably a misconception with a lot of people, especially with girls in the sport, mm-hmm. is that it's going to be a too, too physical. And I have an issue with the word too when it comes to women. Uh, there's nothing too much for anybody. You know, it's only you work within your own their own limitations and I see girls just flat just absolutely growing character and stature and also you know that every size is welcome we actually celebrate every size and you know especially when we're young children the, the, the social challenges on social media etc about how they should look or should behave they come out and play rugby and it's all about just who you are as a person and your qualities as a person and you know you may not be I was a player I was definitely wasn't the best player on the pitch but I'd like to believe that I brought something to that team and I brought something positive um, and I definitely got positive back from that. It's a team, uh, rather, it's a sport by its very structure requires an, an incredible amount of teamwork for, for 15 players to, to operate uh, in a good way, in the right way, as it were. So there's a lot of lessons to be learned from that. You touched on um, girls being in rugby and the stereotyping around its too rough for them and I think I would totally agree with you on the basis that um, they're, they're, all they are is a human being running with the ball and it, it, they're, that's, that's all you need to be 
uh, for this to make sense. The question in relation to the physicality of the sport I wanted to ask is is one that I think should be extended beyond girls and to every every participant. Are the concerns that are out there uh, for young people playing rugby when you look at the very elite level and the velocity of the hits and all that type of thing? Like I have an eight-year-old daughter. Tell me or talk to me about um, what happens on the rugby pitch when they're around that age uh, to put my mind at ease in terms of her participating in it, for instance? Oh, definitely. Yeah, and it can be. It can be, you know, when you're watching, obviously, the international level, they, they, that's astronomical what they, those players, male and female, put their bodies through. And, you know, that's true years and years of strength and conditioning. They're not just coming off the street and straight onto a pitch. And it's the same with the underage and the minis and youth players that come in. We spend a huge amount of time on things like tackle tech, which is all about safety. And, you know, we always say to players, our first priority is safety, safety of yourself and your co the player beside you. You know, it's not a case that you're just willy nilly throwing yourself into situations that are that are going to be anyway dangerous. And we, you know, we, we don't tolerate that type of behavior because it's just not in the nature of the sport. The sport is about skill. You know, it, it looks, I think for a lot of people, it looks worse than it is. Um, and especially for young kids, they just, they, they enjoy it. And I just find it really entertaining when you see little girls and boys come in for their first time. And they're quite intimidated and it's understandably so. But then they get, get to start to do some of the drills and the interactions and the physical part of it. And I would say out of all the kids I've come across, they've all at the end of it enjoyed it. They really have enjoyed it. But it is a massive priority within clubs, which is obviously safety. And that all comes down through quality training. And especially in Mullingar, I found that the management and under under obviously Leinster, it's, it's consistent development of coaches to ensure the highest standards of coaching is uh, made available to children and youth players and senior players, of course, and to ensure that longevity in the sport you know we're seeing now that players even at the national international level that they're being able to play longer because they're looked after better you know uh, head injuries and stuff like that they're becoming less and less um as impactful in you know long-term issues and stuff like that but especially with young children it's all about technique it's all about safety and it's all about understanding how to play and how to tackle yeah, and you can see kind of the at the very highest level in Ireland, the game seems to be developing away from uh, throwing people into the big impacts and, and, and um, kind of playing the ball through hands more and more. So hopefully that's a kind of model that can apply uh, through all the clubs across the country. Mullingar, obviously, is the club you're representing, Paula. Um, if people listening this evening uh, think that they might want to uh, get down of a weekend or, or a weekday evening and, and have their uh, child give it a spin... Um, talk us through uh, what's on offer in terms of age ranges and, and, and training and all that type of thing. Oh, no problem. Yeah, we're actually, we have a really good um, social media presence. So we have Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and uh, parents can contact us through that regards times. On Saturdays is a great time for anyone uh, 12, 12 and under to come out and have a look at just the setup that's there. All the, all the kids will be out training. Um, so parents are very welcome to pop out and even just stand around and have a look and they'll see from themselves what 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 the attraction is to Mullingar. They'll be able to talk to other parents and be able to talk to coaches as well as um, even if their child wants to just come in and give it a try. We're, we're totally open to kids coming in and just experience it for themselves. For youths, 
Um, you, you may even get to see a youth's game on a Saturday or a senior game on a Sunday. By all means, come out and have have a look around. Um, we, have a, we have a fantastic new gym out there as well, which is going to be a, a huge attraction also. But definitely pop out. Uh, Saturday is a great time to pop out. There's lots of coaches around and uh, you can ask lots of questions and even chat to some of the coaches that might be with your child um, and get just basically get a feel for the place because it is an extremely welcoming environment and, um, you know, everybody is welcome. Bringing girls into the game. It looks like the future is pretty bright from a Mullingar Rugby Club perspective. Uh, Paula Lafferty, thanks for taking the time to talk to us on health and fitness this evening. Thank you very much. Another woman leading young women to great things has ascended to the captaincy of Athlone Boat Club. You'll be hearing from Deirdre Fieri next. Health and Fitness with David Hollywoods in association with the Hearing Consultancy. With free hearing test clinics in Clara, Tullamore, Kinnegad, Mullingar Dental Clinic and now at Keen's Care Plus Pharmacy Eden Dairy. Thehearingconsultancy.ie Welcome back. There's been just two female captains of the Athlone Boat Club in its history. The most recent is Deirdre Fieri, who I spoke to earlier. We start our conversation by looking at a moment in history. First female captain was Chrissy Keane 43 years ago. Um, so I'm absolutely delighted that I'm able to represent the women in our club and the girls in our club uh, 43 years later. Tell us, firstly, actually, I'm curious how the process works. How do you end up in this situation? Were you nominated by someone else? Do you have to put yourself forward? Um, it, 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 do you have to do anything in the build up to the decision being made? Well, last year, I mean, I'm, I'm already a committee member, so I'd be involved in a lot of the planning and organising in the club. Sure. And I'm also coaching or help coach junior 14 kids. I think when you're involved in a club like the Boat Club, it's a huge community and it's a community that only works when everybody pulls together. So you try and do as much as you possibly can to for the club that you love. So um, it was suggested to me that I would possibly put my name forward because you have to be nominated to become captain. So I thought about it for a little while and I thought, would I be able to, would it be anything that I could give to the club? And I decided, yep, absolutely. Um, I said I'd, I'd, I'd definitely go forward for it. And I was very lucky to be entrusted with the position for the next two years. You mentioned uh, Chrissy Keane, 1976, she was elected as the club's first female captain. Uh, what kind of resonance does Chrissy's name have in the club? Is she somebody uh, that's remembered beyond this uh, specific entity? Oh, absolutely. I mean, for as long as I've been in the club, which is more years than I'd like to remember, over 30 <laughs> years, Chrissy has been a mainstay in the club. Chrissy is was fantastic cox and a coach and coach for many years, a lot of the women's crews. Um, Chrissy is still involved in the club to this day and every time we have any sort of an event Chrissy is always there and always willing to help with anything that we, we need from her in the last time I suppose in that situation is that lone boat club Chrissy comes down like everybody else what can I do yeah. and that's what, going back to what I said we're just a big community and everybody helps out in whatever way they possibly can that's and actually I got a lovely I got a lovely message from Chrissy when it was announced that um, I was captain and she just sent me a lovely private message saying that she thought it was a great idea and that she wished me every success. And um, it was lovely. You know, I really appreciated it. That's what being part of a club, be it sports or otherwise, is all about, is having those uh, connections with people. Tell me, Deirdre, how did you get into rowing? Because naturally, it's it's not a mainstream sport as, a, as it was. And I think it, it usually is, it, it usually is a collection of very interesting people and um 
it, mm-hmm. it's 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 a very different kind of sport to a, a lot of what uh, most kids end up doing. Uh, talk us through what your journey was towards rowing. <laughs> well, so I'm from town. I'm from St. Francis Terrace. So we would have only been across the water from it. But I joined because of the boys. Ah. And myself and all the girls decided this because <laughs> all the boys were in the boat club and we decided this would be a great idea. And we soon realised that we had very little interest in the boys and we were more interested in the rowing. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> um, and 30 odd years later, uh, I'm still there and as are some of the, some of the girls too. So the reason you joined the club is, is, uh, is, is a funny one in that respect. Uh, but I suppose one of the things you can testify to as a coach, Deirdre, are the kind of physical and mental benefits that rowing brings to, to young people while they're developing. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's why when myself personally, as a teenager, I loved rowing and going forward as an adult. There's so I suppose there's so much pressure put on kids and teenagers and just growing up in general is very difficult that you need a release. And rowing is a very unusual combination that is incredibly mental. You know, when you're rowing, you you can't think about anything other than what you're doing in the boat at that moment because there's so many elements to think about. Mm. So you take yourself out of your own brain. So if you're in a stressful situation, if you've got exams, if you're if life isn't too good at the moment, you can't think about that when you're out rowing. So it's a lovely departure from everyday life. And then it's incredibly physical. Mm. I mean, there's not a muscle in your body that you don't use. I mean, you go up and down, you take a stroke between 25 and 35 times a minute. And you're trying to do that in time with everybody else. You're trying to be, make sure that you're, you're balanced in the same way everybody else is. And that you then you have to put in extra power. So you're, it's a real combination of power, finesse, balance and then you have the mental side so it's the for me anyway it's the complete sport and whether you're good bad or indifferent you get off the water and you just feel fabulous you could have had the worst row it could have been really wet (laughs) it could have been very windy everybody was terrible and you get off the water and you go i just that was great (laughs) you know it's just it's like you know it's it's very hard to describe but it's the type of sport that if you love it you'll always love it and it'll always draw you back in very good. So when you're involved in a club like Athlone that has a real community kind of feel to it, that coupled with the fact that the sport draws you in, it's very hard to leave it. <laughs> well, apparently so. Um, the it, It's interesting. It really sounds like you need poise under pressure uh, to be able to, to work in the boat. And uh, from even from a mindfulness perspective, it sounds like mm. there's great value in that. Talk to us about the club itself and... Um, I suppose, how it's fared competitively uh, because the social and community part of it is is really important. Uh, but also the con- competition provides great motivation for young and old in the club, I'd say. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, competition takes place at various levels. Um, we compete against ourselves. Actually, tomorrow we're having um, a time trial. Uh, from nine o'clock tomorrow morning, all of our boats are going out onto the water we're going up as far as Beam Island and we're all going to row down in timed rows. So we're going to be competing against ourselves, ourselves now and then against ourselves in, say, three months' time and four months' time. Okay. So that's the first part of it, I suppose, that we're not competing against another team. But there are national competitions throughout the year and all of our crews from our junior 13s up to our masters um, would compete at various, very, various events throughout the year and some go internationally as well. Like um, this year, we had a group of masters who went over to Germany 
Now, for the most part, it was it was um, more of a recreational sure. visit, <laughs> but we did have Paul Gallen, um, who's our most formidable master. In fact, he's just our most formidable rower in the club who came home with um, gold medals from the European Championships over in Munich and then went over to the World Champ, the Masters Championships over in South Africa and came home with two golds and a silver. That's brilliant. I mean, I think that in itself shows that you can row at any age, you can row at any ability and you can get so much out of it. That's the great thing about um, the Masters competitions as well, mm. isn't it? It gives um, people that platform uh, to show that they're they're absolutely up at their very best level, whatever that ceiling is for themselves based yeah. on what age they are. Uh, they can really compete on a level footing uh, for a long, long time then. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there is no there is no stopping point. And it, rowing is the only sport when you become a master is that you really want to be old because it's all categorized by, by your age. So yeah. the older you are, the better, you know, the, I suppose the um, more of an advantage it is. So everybody wants to be old when they're rowing. <laughs> but I mean, our success internationally isn't just limited to Paul. I mean, we this year we've had Zach Megan and last year Zach got two European gold medals um, and this year he's gone a step for, further and he, part, he took part in the World Championships, the Junior World Championships and himself and Shane Rafferty from St. Michael's Club are sixth best double scholars in their age group in the world. There must be huge excitement six, about that. Absolutely, sixth in the world. I mean, that's absolutely amazing. It goes and to show. And it's also amazing then for the kids as well that they, they train with this guy and they if he can do it, why can't everybody else? It's just what I was going to say. It goes to show yeah. that if 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 someone is is at Athlone Boat Club and uh, they're using the same facilities, they're being coached by the same coaches, uh, yeah. then it very much is that if you can see it, then you can believe it. Mm. And, um, you know, it, it, it blazes a trail for generations to come, hopefully. It, it absolutely does. I mean, you're, you're 100% right, because this year now we've had Reen Classy, who has gone to the Europeans um, in Junior 18 and competed brilliantly. And Reen also got an indoor, another 16 indoor rowing record, Irish record this year, which is phenomenal. Um, and Rian's crew over in the Europeans was coached with, by one of our own coaches, um, Fergus Hannon. So Fergus was the Irish coach and the manager of the, of the boys team. The achievements on the water are one thing, uh, but I wanted to, as we finish up our chat, Deirdre, is pivot back to uh, yourself and your role as captain in the club. Yeah. One of the legacies you'll leave one way or the other is representing um, women in the sport of rowing and as being a club captain, it is a substantive platform that you're on. So what are your feelings about uh, being a female presence uh, in the boat club and being a captain? I'm absolutely delighted that I am female captain and I think it's probably been far too long of a gap between myself and Chrissy, and I would hope that this would, I suppose, encourage other women to take the step forward to be captain or president um, of our club. 50%, over 50% of our committee are made up of women. And we have a very strong dynamic female presence in the club from our committee, our coaches, and also our female membership. So I just think it's a very, me taking over the role as captain, to me seems like a very natural progression um, for the women in in our club. And I hope that continues. Well, that's very well put. Just to finish up then, a word for the outgoing captain, uh, Nick Friel. Um, he's been in the role. Is there 
stuff that you were able to learn off him going into it yourself and uh, presumably you'd like to extend, extend a gesture of gratitude towards the work he did over the last couple of years? Oh, absolutely. I mean, over the last two years, I, I mean, really I've only gotten to, know, gotten to know Nick over the last two years and he's a very calm, capable uh, captain and nothing was ever a problem. Any issues we ever had, he was so approachable. And for me, you know, I would go to him with coaching issues that I might have. That's no problem. You know, everything was easy. It came across that it was very easy from him. And I hope that I'm able to um, carry that along. He's also been incredible help for me, actually, since I've taken over the role. Because even before I started, he was like, Deirdre, anything you want. Anything you want, anything I can help you with. And I'm sure he's ready to put my phone on block, my number on block <laughs> at this point. But um, I don't think he will. No, Nick is great. And we're going to be seeing Nick around the club anyway. So he can't get away, he can't get away from me. Well, but I'm absolutely delighted that I actually have the support of him in the club because um, it's, it's, his knowledge is invaluable. Well, it's now your responsibility to create that legacy and space for the next captain in the future. How do you feel about that finally? Ooh, no pressure, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Something to look forward no, to, look, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I'm just looking forward to getting stuck in and trying to actually figure out what I can give to the role and how I can help the club progress and develop like Nick has done over the last couple of years. So it's it's very exciting and a bit daunting, but it'll be good fun along the way. Deirdre, well done as your election as captain. The best of luck with everything in the future and thanks for joining us on Health and Fitness this evening. Oh, thanks very much for having me. I appreciate it. Next, we're celebrating carers in the Midlands and around the country. Health and Fitness with David Hollywoods in association with The Hearing Consultancy. Passionate about hearing and hearing health, we use the latest technologies to identify and analyse hearing issues and provide their solutions. Book a free test on thehearingconsultancy.ie. Now, on Health and Fitness this evening, we're returning to a story that uh, we've been covering intermittently over the course of uh, my lifetime on the show, and that is um, the carer's sector in Ireland, a great number of uncelebrated heroes, I think, in operation over the course of uh, a long, long time in this country. Uh, hopefully we can do something to give them a bit of a platform on health and fitness. Something to celebrate now is the Nursing Homes Ireland Care Awards. So I suppose it goes to speak to exactly the issue I was mentioning there is that uh, they're probably not celebrated enough. The um, Nursing Homes Ireland CEO, Tyg Daly, joins us on the programme this evening. Tyg, thanks very much for taking our call. You're very welcome, David. Good to speak with you. Uh, let's talk about the Care Awards. This must be a really exciting time for Nursing Homes Ireland and uh, for everybody involved. Uh, it can be a tough slog when it comes to the occupation itself uh, so there's a great many people out there deserving of being celebrated uh, Absolutely as you said uh, you know ultimately there's about 25,000 people who live in nursing homes across the country and call nursing homes their home uh, and the reason they call it their home is because of the, the caring committed, committed and dedicated uh, professional staff that, that work in the sector um, you know clearly through COVID uh, there was a lot of talk about heroes and heroines and essential workers so what we're trying to do through the Care Awards, this is year 10 actually of our Care Awards, is to you know, acknowledge and celebrate the excellence in care from the staff who, who work in the sector. So uh, it, it is important to celebrate that. It, it is a, a difficult role working in health generally. Working in nursing homes is very challenging. Uh, so it's important to take a step back every now and again and say, on the one hand, well done, uh, thank you, uh, and to acknowledge the professionalism, the, I suppose, the care 
and the commitment they bring to the, the residents that they're fortunate to care for. There are 24 finalists who are up for awards and um, one of our very own, uh, Jerry Cogan, is a maintenance manager, Multi Farnham, that's at Newbrook uh, Nursing Home Group. Uh, he's one of 24 finalists and uh, it, the finalists come from a range of disciplines, I understand. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's opportune to say well done and congratulations to, to, to Jerry from um, the, the Newbrook Nursing Home in Multi Farnham. Yeah, I mean, effectively what we have is we have 24 nominees uh, we have an independent judging panel chaired by uh, Dr. Amanda Phelan from Trinity College. Uh, so what they've done is they we put out a call effectively to members and to members of the public to nominate people that they would have seen going above and beyond the call of duty, as it were. Um, so we received, I think, almost 400 applications across the country. So Jerry Cogan from, from Multifarnham Nursing Home is one of the 24 shortlisted. And, you know, Jerry works in maintenance. We have uh, nurses. We have carers. Um, we have people who work in palliative and end-of-life care. And we also have a resident uh, who has been nominated in, in one of the categories. So, yeah, it is a very, very exciting time and we're really looking forward to the award ceremony now on the 7th of November. I was just going to say, it's only around the corner. So um, the week after next, uh, the build-up will finally bring you to the point of the awards. Uh, talk to us about what the nights are like. I imagine the room has got that great din of excitement and people catching up and all that type of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And um, our last award ceremony was actually 2019. Um, oh, so pre-pandemic. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, we didn't have any award, award ceremonies through the pandemic for obvious reasons. Um, so, it, you know, it has a special resonance this year as we re, reunite, I suppose, as it were. Um, so what you have is your people from right across the nursing home sector, from all corners of, of Ireland, uh, coming together to, as I say, celebrate and, and chat and share stories, share experiences. And, and, you know, take pride in what they do because there is huge pride in those who work in the sector. Uh, and as I said, those 24 nominees now really looking forward to it. It's in the, the iconic round room in the Mansion House. Uh, renowned uh, TV presenter, now retired Mary Kennedy, is, is our MC for the evening. And, um, you know, it's important, as I said, to just kick back among friends, uh, have a bite of lunch, uh, have some food, and, and to, to, to celebrate and, and to acknowledge those uh, heroes and heroines who, who uh, go above and beyond the call of duty every single day of the week. Yeah, and Mary Kennedy, I think, does a great job when she does MC these events. So uh, you're in safe hands in that regard. You mentioned the great amount of pride that people have in their work, Tig. Uh, what about the work itself from uh, Nursing Home Ireland's perspective? We alluded to the fact that it can be a difficult occupation to work in uh, sometimes. Uh, where are we, uh, from your perspective, in terms of the supports, um, be it through the state or, or the broader uh, society in Ireland, uh, for those who uh, work in and around under the umbrella of Nursing Homes Ireland? Yeah, look, I, I suppose we do feel from time to time that there isn't a, a full appreciation of those who work in the sector. So that's why it's important you know, we take the opportunity to, to gather ourselves and reward and celebrate those people. But, you know, look, we have a, an aging population. That's something to be celebrated. You know, all of us are, are living longer. The age, the age profile of those who live in nursing homes now is quite complex, quite, um, I suppose, dependent in terms, of their, in, in terms of their care needs. So we do need to plan. And as a country, I would be concerned that we're not planning for that aging population. Um, and just not in, in terms of healthcare. Obviously, I'm concerned about nursing homes, but housing, you know, pensions, etc. There are significant challenges there. So we do need as a society to get around the table and look uh, at how we're going to meet those care needs. 
And one of the biggest challenges uh, from a, a nursing home's point of view and healthcare generally is workforce. Um, obviously, funding and, and financing of care is, is challenging in the current climate with with the, um, I suppose, incessant inflationary pressures. But workforce is a key, key issue. And we need to attract uh, more people to work in the care sector. Uh, we need to ensure that they're remunerated proper, properly, that they're trained and supported to do the job that they do, because it, it is a very, very difficult job, a very rewarding job, um, but a key part of, of a well-functioning health service. We know every day of the week that there's three, 400 people on trolleys in our acute hospitals because people can't get access to community care. So the nursing home sector has a huge, huge role to play as part of a, a well-functioning health service. Yeah, a growing role, as you've alluded to there, and uh, certainly a role that changes as time and developments occur within the sector. And I read recently, you know, it, private and voluntary nursing homes provide care for uh, over 24,000 residents and uh, employ anything between uh, twenty six to 36,000 people in the sector as well. So the footprint in this country, whilst not spoken about a lot, is massive. Yeah, it is huge, and it is it is the essence of community care. You know, we talk about, I suppose, you know, the, the policy in terms of Shalanta care is reorientating care from acute to community. I mean, clearly our acute hospitals have a huge role to play, but once a person's acute care needs have been met in the hospital, then it's important that they can be met in the community. And that's what nursing homes are. They're, they're community services, um, you know, so people can get care in their own local area, be cared for by people who live and work in the area, and close to family and friends who can visit because it is very much a social model of care. And that's why it's important that we celebrate the fact that nursing homes uh, is a home from home. And and the fact that we have an ageing population means that we need more services um, in terms of daycare, meals on wheels, you know, independent living, home care and uh, nursing home care into the future. Well, the celebrations will be on the 7th of November in um, the Mansion House in Dublin. And uh, we wish you the very best for the Nursing Home Ireland Care Awards and the very best to Jerry Cogan, who's Westmead's representative, the maintenance manager at Newbrook Nursing Home. Uh, Tyg, thanks again for taking the time to talk to us on Health and Fitness. Thank you indeed, David, and, and uh, thank you to, your, to the opportunity to promote uh, what is a very, very important part of the Nursing Homes Ireland annual calendar. Not at all. Take care. Thank you indeed. Bye for now. That's our lot on health and fitness this week. We're making way for Joe Cooney and Country Roads, which follows the news at 8 o'clock.